of, you know, why should someone sitting in, did you say Prioria? Peoria, Illinois. <laughs> it's this fated place that's come to typify middle America. Why someone sitting there should care about Saudi Arabia. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. It's Thursday, March 24. I'm Daniel Moss, Bloomberg News Executive Editor for Global Economics. I'm based in New York, but I'm back in DC today, which means I can be in the studio with my co-host, Tori Stilwell, an economics reporter at Bloomberg News. It's great to be back, Tori. Yay! All under one roof again. You know, Benchmark's been traveling quite a bit lately, having focused ourselves largely on the US in 2015. In the last couple of episodes, we've visited India to assess whether the world's soon-to-be most populous country can ever have an economy to match that. We've also talked about China's incredible shrinking labor market, and today we're going to take a trip to Saudi Arabia, where there's more than meets the eye. What stitches these geographic themes together, Dan? Well, India and China are both going through significant economic change, as is Saudi Arabia. It's fascinating, really. We'll have two guests to help us work through this. Donna Abu Nasser, a Bloomberg colleague with extensive experience in the country, and Monica Malik, chief economist at Abu Dhabi Commercial Bank in the United Arab Emirates, which is right next door to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I feel like if we were to play a word association game, like asking people what were some of the first words that came to mind when they thought about Saudi Arabia, I know for me personally it would be oil, the desert, and women aren't allowed to drive. I mean, the last one is a phrase, not a word, but you know. What about religion and strict moral codes? Yeah, maybe, yeah. Well, we'll get to all that. Now, remember one thing. Economic necessity tends to drive social change, and the country does matter enormously. It's been called the central bank of oil, like the Fed or the ECB of that black liquid stuff that makes the world go round. And it has so much of it. You know, when you think about it, Tori, oil is the juice that's essentially driven the hydrocarbon economy, and that's been the economy of the past century. And beyond economics, it's traditionally been one of the West's main allies in the region. But let's stick with oil. Now, the country rose from essentially a Bedouin society to fantastic wealth on the back of the product in just the space of a few generations. But sure enough, oil is now making Saudi Arabia poor. Do you know I just learned the definition of Bedouin? Oh, really? Yeah, I'm reading 100 Years of Solitude, and he uses that word. It means just like of Arab descent, basically, like an Arab nomad. I didn't know that before. I didn't realize Marquez had those kind of insights. Yeah, Different continent, different culture. (laughs) Well, anyways, Saudi Arabia is the largest exporter of oil and accounts for 16% of the planet's oil reserves. But as listeners of our show may know, the price of oil has been on a swoon since 2014, losing 30% of its value that year and about 50% last year. And ironically, many analysts attribute that decline to a price war that Saudi Arabia itself started and ultimately couldn't stop. While oil has rallied a bit off of that bottom, it's only fetching about $40 a barrel right now, down from about $90 a barrel 18 months ago. And that is, as you can imagine, quite a hit to national income, and it's ricocheting through Saudi Arabia's entire economy. And that's forced the kingdom's rulers, the House of Saud, to undertake some quite drastic measures. 
they're talking about a value-added tax. There's no income tax there, by the way. That's been one of the long-term benefits of oil. They've also foreshadowed cuts in spending, reduction in subsidies, and wait for a drum roll, <laughs> changes in labour force participation. Joining us right now is Donna Abu Nasser, who covers economics and government for Bloomberg in the Middle East. Donna has reported extensively on Saudi Arabian economics and politics. She's now based in Beirut, but here's an interesting fact. Donna opened the Associated Press Bureau in Saudi Arabia in 2008. Pretty cool. Donna, it's great to have you. Uh, Tell us, when were you last in Saudi Arabia and what did you notice when you were there compared with other visits you've made over the years? Well, I was last in December. It was my first time back in about three years. And what I found is a younger, more vibrant Saudi Arabia. Uh, It was apparent the moment I arrived at the airport. uh, There used to be a very drab arrival hall years ago. It's now bright. You have uh, televisions showing cartoons. You have young men greeting you. Um, Older women, women with children were asked to sit down while male relatives took care of passports controlled. So it was apparent from the moment I set foot in Saudi Arabia. And what about economically? I mean, aside from the fact that it's now crawling with McKinsey consultants. Well, Saudis have to get used to a new standard of life. Basically, uh, the new Saudi generation is going to live the kind of life that their parents didn't. Their parents lived through the financial boom that made Saudis collectively rich. They won't. And so they're trying to adjust to life, you know, with low oil prices, trying to make priorities, trying to cut some luxuries or maybe take on other jobs. So, I mean, when we're thinking about a person's everyday life here, a person living in Saudi Arabia, can you think of any examples of how that person's life would be affected, that day-to-day life would be affected by lower oil prices? Well, I spoke to somebody. He uh, works as a professor at the university, and uh, he, you know, studied in the U.S., so he said he was going to take advantage of the things that he learned in the U.S. and try to make money out of it, uh, training Saudis on how to market their goods, basically. Um, He said that uh, at home he's teaching his children basically to save uh, power, so he said, uh, he told his children, if you save 300 dials worth of electricity a month, the money will go to you. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, basically they're trying to learn new habits. So is there a sense that your average Saudi Arabian family is recalibrating the way it thinks about its economic life and the way it sets its household budgets and the way it plans for the future? Uh, they are. I mean, this guy told me that, according, I mean, he to his friends, to his family, and so on, they still hadn't absorbed what uh, happened. And so he said he keeps telling them that they have to look at their bills, uh, that they have to make them uh, smaller, basically, uh, that they have to look for other ways to find income. So, yeah, they will have to adjust. 
Now, oil has enabled the government to subsidize many aspects of economic life in Saudi Arabia. What types of aspects? Well, my understanding, Donna, is there is no income tax, for example. That's true. And what about gas, electricity, fuel? These things are all heavily subsidized as well. They are. And on top of that, you know, university students they who go to government uh, universities, they get about $260 a month as a, a monthly stipend from the government. And does the decline in the price of oil mean the state is less able to pamper its citizens generally? And what impact is that then having? One of the things that's been affected is the government-funded program that sent tens of thousands of Saudi men and women to the West to study. Uh, now I'm hearing that the government is making it more difficult for students to go, and the general feeling is that the lower oil prices has something to do with it. And is all of this ultimately forcing or at least enabling a significant degree of social change. I read a story that you and our colleague Vivian Nerum wrote recently, which talked about women entering the workforce at more than twice the rate of men. Talk about mm -hmm. that. Um, when you have a lot of women coming back home from the West, educated women, uh, keep in mind that uh, the uh, women outnumber w uh, men when it comes to higher education. So when they come back home, these women want to find jobs. They are looking for jobs, and the government is trying to make it easier for them to basically uh, find jobs. For instance, when I was in Saudi Arabia around 2004, I remember walking into a uh, store that sells lingerie, and I saw a woman. She was totally covered in black. Only her eyes were showing, and she was holding up a lacy orange bra and asking the salesman in a whisper if he had her size. Now, I mean, she's covered. He's not supposed to be looking at her, but he was arguing with her about her size. It was, you know, I spoke to a lot of women, and they said it was very embarrassing for them to, to buy underwear in Saudi Arabia. Some of them would go out of the country to buy it, simply because women were not allowed to work in stores. You know, the conservative religious establishment thought that women should not be mixing with men, and uh, if they weren't a saleswoman, then this thing would happen. So now, 10 years later, when I went this time, I found women not only in lingerie and makeup stores, but even as cashiers. Working so, there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. And there's a sense that this is being fueled by the change in oil prices and the, the new sort of day life that these people are new adjusting to. Era. So, Donna, at the beginning of the show, I was saying how I feel like one of the most uh, common things that people know about Saudi Arabia, if you were to just ask foreigners, perhaps, is that women there aren't allowed to drive. So we've, we've got all this change that we just talked about, and yet the unwritten slash written rule, I'm not even exactly sure uh, what it is, is that women can't drive. So is there any sense that this is going to change and that uh, we'll see women behind the wheel more often? I don't see anything right now, but Saudis that I used to talk to in, in Riyadh would tell me that Saudi Arabia can afford to stop its women from driving simply because they are rich. 
and oil has made them rich. So does lower oil prices mean that Saudi women will finally be able to drive? We'll have to wait and see. But it might mean your average Saudi family has difficulty affording drivers. And once that changes, that opens the door to other things. Absolutely. Donna, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Let's dive a little deeper into the data and the macroeconomic context in which this is all happening. Helping us is Monica Malik, Chief Economist at Abu Dhabi Commercial Bank in Abu Dhabi, and she also did her PhD on the Saudi Arabian economy. Monica, it's great you could join us. Thank you very much for having me. So if you look out your office window, you can just about see Saudi Arabia. At a push, but yes, I, I, <laughs> I tend to travel there a lot, so I keep in touch that way. Well, Monica, how significant are the economic challenges the country faces right now? Is it just oil is down, so we have to tighten our belts a little bit for a while, or is something more seminal happening? I think something more seminal is happening. Firstly, I think it's important to note that This is not the first time that Saudi Arabia has entered a a low oil price downturn outlook. And in fact, Saudi Arabia is entering this low oil price period in a better position than it's ever been uh, with regards to fiscal buffers. And that includes high FX reserves and low debt levels. However, Saudi Arabia is also facing a number of of economic challenges and social challenges. And this means that it cannot just be a case of Saudi Arabia using its reserves without wider fiscal reforms. And that is what we're seeing this time around. Uh, When the budget was announced in December, concurrent with that, there were a number of fiscal reforms. And it's really the first time we're seeing it to this magnitude, not only in Saudi Arabia, but the wider GCC region. So what's changed in the Saudi economy and Saudi society to make it different this time? Because as you've mentioned, you know, oil's had its ups and downs. It was around $10 a barrel in the late 90s. What's happened between then and now? Well, I think population growth is a, a significant part of, of the social change. We've seen sort of strong population growth for the last three decades. Previously, the government was always the employer of last resort, and Saudi nationals could be absorbed by the public sector. But this is no longer the case. And infrastructure has also not kept up with the population growth. So there's, for example, a shortage of housing for for, for Saudi nationals. There's a need to upgrade utility infrastructure. There's shortages in the summer where where demand is higher because of the warmer weather. So to meet these challenges, Saudi nationals will have to be absorbed by the private sector. At the same time, the Saudi government, which had very sort of generous subsidy programs and so on, cannot afford to continue with these payments as as they had done before. What uh, What does labor force participation look like in Saudi Arabia? Well, that's a a very interesting question, and of course it it varies greatly between the female and male population. If we look at unemployment for for men in the Saudi labor force, it's very small, it's about 5%, but for women, it's around 33%. 
So there's a marked difference. And while women's employment has been a key objective of the government, and you have seen strong percentage growth, especially in 2013 and 2014, it's from a very low base. And of course, there's social and cultural um, issues that sort of make greater participation difficult, although the change is happening slowly. When looked at from 30,000 feet or from, say, Peoria, Illinois, why on earth with this incredible wealth aren't there jobs for everyone in Saudi society? I mean, why is there even a discussion about the structure of the labour market? Surely there's enough to go around. I think a lot of the issue is the need for educational reform. That has been a key focus of the government. The focus has been on sort of changing the education system that meets the requirements of the private sector more. And of course, given that it is education, it it does take time for the reform to, one, happen, and two, to filter into the labor force market. Now, what you are seeing over the last few years, alongside programs such as Saudiization, which aims to increase the quotas of Saudi nationals working in companies, there have also been a number of of schemes that look at on-job training, so where government could give, you know, sort of part of the payment of, of the employee's wages to a company. And these are all methods that they're trying to use to try and narrow the gap between the output of the education system and the requirements of the private sector. Also, what we've seen is is a need to increase foreign investment into Saudi Arabia, and not just in the hydrocarbon sector or, you know, the capital intensive sector, but the areas that would create jobs growth. And another area of focus is, is, is increasing the small to medium size industries and, and companies, because also these are the areas that can provide new employment opportunities. But I think a lot of the issues is that the oil sector and the hydrocarbon sector dominates the Saudi Arabian economy. This tends to be capital intensive, not labor intensive. And, and job creation also needs to go hand in hand with the diversification of the economy. Yeah, it's really interesting because a lot of what you're saying in its own way could apply to the United States right now. We've been hearing a lot about needing to fix the skills gap between what employers want and what people are coming out of college and and high school with and sort of how to marry that gap, as you eloquently put it, as well as we used to have, or not even that long ago, a year ago, maybe a little bit more, we had a booming shale industry that was employing a ton of people. And as we know, those sectors have been laying people off. Where do they go to find jobs? So I thought it was really interesting that Saudi Arabia and America seem to be facing somewhat similar issues. Um, One thing that I'm wondering, though, is sort of why, how this plays into the broader global narrative, you know, why should someone sitting in, did you say Prioria? Peoria, Illinois. (laughs) It's this fated place that's come to typify middle America. Okay, well, that place. I I can't believe you've never heard of it. (laughs) I just can't pronounce it. Why someone sitting there should care about Saudi Arabia? Well, I think it it still plays a leading role in the global hydrocarbon sector. If we look at 
the strategy that OPEC has implemented over the last two years. It's very much driven by Saudi Arabia and its objective to, to maintain market share. The fact that it does have greater buffers than it did in previous cycles means that they can have a strategy to keep oil prices lower for a while, although we have seen a shift to look at freezing output with the move down in oil prices in, in the early part of 2016. So I think its role in the oil sector, but also the fact that it's the largest economy in the region. It's, it's got a strong population. It will provide a strong domestic base of growth and consumption if we do see the employment picture improving and, and picking up. There's a number of quite exciting programs and projects that are going on in, in the kingdom on the education side and, and trying to bring research and development into the country, although these are quite tentative and initial moves. So I think that the fact that you are seeing the social change, the role of Saudi Arabia in the region and in the hydrocarbon sector are all, you know, important on the global perspective. We've talked a little about changes in the labour force. And before you were on, our colleague Donna talked a little bit about the evolution of the role of women in the workplace. Monica, what's it like for you when you go to visit clients in Saudi Arabia and compare it with, say, your experience 5, 10, 15 years ago? Um, you know, I, I was doing my PhD in Saudi Arabia in the late 1990s when oil was at the end around $11 a barrel. One thing that is very notable when I do go in, while there are still a number of, of cultural restrictions, the ease of getting visas, the ability to travel by myself, the ability to go into offices has changed markedly. I think it's far easier for women to go and conduct business there. But I think the social change has been quite notable, uh, women being able to, to vote in municipal elections, but also so a more outward-looking view and stance is also there. So while from the outside it might not seem as significant or substantial change, but for someone who has been looking at Saudi Arabia for uh, you know, quite a while now, it, you do notice changes and, and you know, changing mentalities and attitudes. There's a lot to think about there, Tori. It is, it is. Thank you so much for joining us, Monica. This was great. It's very much a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks to you all for listening to Bloomberg Benchmark. We'll be back again next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal as well as Bloomberg.com, iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and many other places. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to and follow us on Twitter at, at Tori Stilwell and at Daniel Moss DC. Did you know our producer, Liz, came from Peoria, Illinois? Yeah, I just found that out. Shout out to Liz. Liz.